From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, September 10th. I'm Marco Werman. Iran is under economic pressure. U.S. sanctions may be a factor. But what worries Iranians is the declining value of their currency. People are waking up and what they have, their assets, is just worth less and less every day. And later, more freedoms for Palestinian women, including those who want alimony from their ex-husbands. Today I'm here to, to get money for children. He has to pay. Until now he, he doesn't. So it's good. That's ahead on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon, October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH, producer of American Experience, filmmaker Rick Burns examines how the staggering death tolls of the Civil War altered the character and psyche of our nation forever. Don't miss Death and the Civil War, Tuesday, September 18th, on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In the diplomatic battle between the United States and Iran, economic sanctions are a key U.S. weapon. But knowing if the sanctions are working is not an exact science. Right now, though, there's evidence that Iran could be feeling the financial heat from those sanctions. The value of Iran's currency has taken a steep drop, hitting a new record low against the U.S. dollar. That could be because Iran's hard currency reserves are too low as a result of sanctions and a weakening economy. Nazila Fati is Iranian and was New York Times correspondent in Tehran for years before being forced out in 2009. She's now a fellow at Harvard's Belfer Center. So how serious is this currency crisis, Nazila? How empty are Iran's currency reserves right now? Well, Marco, it is quite serious, and people have been very, very scared over what has been happening in the past year, and especially the past few days, because uh, the, the value of the Iranian currency has uh, dropped in half uh, in the past year, and then in the past three days, about 17%. So it's a very, very scary thing happening. People are waking up, and what they have, their assets, is just worth less and less every day. So how much then are are sanctions at the root of this, would you say? The sanctions are definitely hurting the economy. And it has has steered a psychological warfare because every time that the value of Iranian real drops, people storm the market and they want to change their their currency into a into a different currency. Uh, but, but this one is seems to be more related to the internal rifts inside the country, corruption, mismanagement, and uh, bad decisions that the government is making. The the sanctions have specifically helped slip Iran's uh, rank as an oil producer from second to fourth as. As an OPEC member. So its income, oil revenue, is dropping, but it hasn't reached a point that it would drive the crisis to this point. But it is getting harder and harder for Iran to sell that oil because of sanctions, right? Very much, yeah. But still, there's a six-month waiver for about 20 countries to buy oil from Iran. They have to buy oil for a lesser amount, but they're still buying. 
Right. And a lot of that oil is unrefined. So Iran typically has to buy fuel, gasoline back. Uh, How is that affecting inflation and the price of bread and gas? Because you need gasoline to ship all that stuff. That is true. Well, Iran uh, lifted the subsidy over gasoline a long time ago before the sanctions became so severe. But in addition to that, inflation on a daily basis is just crippling Iranian society. I mean, this is the only thing that Iranians talk about these days. Whenever you talk to someone, they complain about the price of basic goods such as milk, yogurt, bread, just going up day after day. Right. I mean, uh, the movie uh, Separation deals with an Iranian family faced with an economically beset country. I mean, people there must be getting angry. Who, Who do they blame? People are very angry, and they first blame their own government. The sanctions are responsible for part of the problem, and the government is trying to blame all the economic problems on the sanctions. But this is something that Iranians have been dealing with for over 30 years. Uh, They've seen their government make bad decisions, take the wrong steps at different points, and it has always burdened the society. Now, as a sign of perhaps just how big a concern the economy is to the Iranian government, uh, there's a report from one news agency that text messages containing words like dollar and euro or even currency symbols were being blocked. Have you been able to confirm that? Yes, I heard from people on the ground that messages that contained some of the words, as far as I knew, the the dollar sign was still working, but maybe they have added that to the list that uh, censors the messages. Uh, Apparently, people cannot send text messages that contain certain words related to, to the foreign currency, words like euro, dollar. Uh, We know that the government has the capability, the software, the will to do that. It has done it in the past. It did it last year in January, and it was doing it to political messages in 2009. So I wouldn't be surprised if they're doing that again. Nazila Fati at Harvard's Belfer Center. Thank you very much. Thank you. Another word that's not said much either in Iran is divorce. That's because it's hard to get one. Same is true if you're a Palestinian woman and living in the West Bank. Was true, actually. Until recently, Palestinian Muslim women who wanted to end their marriage had to get their husband's consent first. Without it, divorce proceedings were sure to be difficult, drawn out, and costly. Now they have more options, thanks in part to an Islamic cleric in the Palestinian Sharia court system. The world's Matthew Bell reports from Ramallah. Yusuf Ades hardly fits the stereotypical profile of a campaigner for women's rights. His tightly clipped beard, long gray coat, and high white and maroon hat identifies him as a Muslim sheikh. But his eminence, Sheikh Ades, as his official title goes, head of the Sharia High Court, tends to gush when he talks about the new regulations on divorce that he helped bring about. I found that there are a lot of problems, and the law was not solving them. So therefore I took this daring step in order to help a huge sector of society, namely women, resolve their problems. For a long time, the sheikh says unhappily married Palestinian women faced a dilemma. They needed their husband's permission to get a divorce. Without it, the ordeal would be harrowing. Ade says the introduction of al-khuloh, a legal concept meaning to remove in Arabic, makes things more equal. Muslim women can now go to the Sharia court and ask for a divorce on their own. Without a doubt, the sheikh says, not everybody is happy about the changes. Since I issued the new divorce laws, I got many phone calls from men begging me to reverse my decision. 
They were crying, please, please, your decision puts us in danger. But I told them, your phone call reassures me that I made the right decision and that women with their new rights are victorious. I will not renege on my decision. There are different aspects to the new regulations. One requires a married man to get permission from his first wife before he can take a second wife. As a judge put it to me, this requirement will put an end to secret second marriages. Other legal changes are about inheritance and child visitation rights. Mesa Abu Ghanem, a divorced mother, visited the Sharia High Court a few days after the new laws were announced. She wants to sue her ex-husband for alimony. Today I'm here to, to get money for children. He has to pay. Until now he, he doesn't. So it's good. It's good. Here's another problem the new regulations aim to fix. Dating, in the Western sense, is not widely accepted in Palestinian Muslim society. So many young couples sign a marriage contract before they really get to know each other. During this engagement period, the relationship might fall apart. And now the woman can break the marriage contract more easily than before. What prompted these legal changes? A highly publicized murder, which we reported about on The World. Nancy Saboon was a Palestinian mother of three young children who was trying to divorce her abusive husband, but he stabbed her to death one summer afternoon in a busy Bethlehem market. Samoud Demiri is a prosecutor at the Sharia court. Nancy paid dearly for this change that has taken place after her death. Sometimes people pay with their blood so that change can take place. Had this situation, had this law been implemented before, maybe Nancy would not have died. The legal changes are definitely an improvement, says Hekmat Basiso. She's an activist for Palestinian women's rights. Basiso also has been through a divorce herself. And because she remarried, her ex-husband was given full custody of their six-year-old son. She's suing him for the right to spend 24 hours a week with the boy. Basiso says she's confident she'll win her case. But here's the problem. We don't have implementation unit in Sharia court. So the Sharia court give a very good decisions and the very good orders most of the time. But still, these orders will not be approved and works until the other side say, OK, I will follow that. In other words, Basiso says the Sharia court has not been good at implementing its rulings. She says what's most likely to happen with her case is that her husband will ignore the ruling from the religious court, and then Basiso will be forced to bring the case to a civil court and start all over again. These are positive developments, but implementation is key, she says, for these new divorce laws to really have an impact on Palestinian society. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Ramallah in the West Bank. Other recent changes in the Mideast and the Arab world are the result of the Arab Spring. People in countries like Tunisia and Egypt are enjoying the kind of freedom of expression they were denied for decades by repressive governments. One popular form of expression that's spreading now is graffiti. El Cid, who prefers not to use his real name, is a French-Tunisian graffiti artist who lives in Montreal. He gets commissions to work all around the globe. He actually calls his art calligraphy because he uses Arabic calligraphy in what he paints on walls and buildings. El Cid says the Arab Spring has unleashed a flood of graffiti. Since, you know, we have like freedom of expression, people, they really want to express themselves freely and bring the message to everyone. Like say, they want to say what they have in mind to everyone. And um, I don't know, I hear a lot that 
artists create revolution, but I believe in, in Tunisia is the contrary, like revolution has created artists. Since, you know, like January 14th last year, we see like a lot of people like getting in the street and painting, like just uh, regular graffiti, but a lot of street art, like lettering and some figurative uh, pieces as well. So it's kind of the corollary. It's actually the revolution that's creating the art now. Yeah, actually, I think like you encourage it a lot. Before, like, January 14, you know, I knew some graffiti artists and some street artists in Tunisia, but it was a lot really underground, you know, and now, like, all those artists, like, painting in the street are brought to the stage, and it's not seen as, like, vandalism or anything like this. People recognize it as a true form of art because it was linked to, like, a big historical change in, uh, in the country. Mm, and January 14th being the day that uh, President Ben Ali was uh, yeah. evicted. Exactly. Now, if you look across the Arab world, it seems that the graffiti varies in quality, the graffiti that's now appearing. Some artists seem quite well-trained. Others really are more like North American taggers. Just to contrast, yeah. tell us about the kind of work you do. Me, actually, I, uh, I paint in Arabic and only in Arabic. I don't even put now like the translation of my work in English or French. It's just like Arabic because I believe like the Arab script speak to the soul before speaking to the eye. And in another way, it's it's a way for me to fight this kind of uh, cultural imperialism where you have to translate everything for the other people to understand. For me, it's more like a way to create a bridge to invite people to learn more about Arabic language and uh, Arab culture. And I encourage a lot of people, you know, in the, in the Middle East, like the youth starting graffiti now, to paint in Arabic because we have a culture and a history. And I think we need to use that and not like just copy what is done, you know, in other countries. We need to create our own graffiti style. So let's take one example of your work that you painted in Tunisia. You painted the side of a minaret in your hometown of Gabes. Tell us about that. Yeah. Okay. So actually, I painted the two sides of the mosque, and I painted that during Ramadan, and I painted on it like a, a verse from the Quran. I took a, a verse which is a, a universal message, which saying like, oh, humankind, we have created you from a male and a female. Hmm. So it was a way to bring people together in Tunisia and even out of Tunisia. You know, It's a message of tolerance and mutual respect. But what I want to say is graffiti is coming from the street. It has to stay in the street, you know. Mm. So even it goes into galleries, even if you have an event, graffiti is still a spontaneous thing, you know, that you get a spray can and you paint on the wall. It has to stay like underground. El Cid is a French-Tunisian graffiti artist. He lives in Montreal. We've got a slideshow of his work at theworld.org. El Cid, thank you very much. Good to speak with you. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. An update now on Mexico's presidential election. The vote itself, as you may remember, was in July, but the arguing over the vote's validity drags on. The world's William Troop has more. The winner last July was Enrique Peña Nieto, the candidate of the PRI. That's the party that ruled Mexico for seven decades until it was ousted by voters in 2000. During its time in office, the PRI became known for hanging on to power through corruption and rigged elections. Its victory at the polls this year was greeted by similar allegations. The PRI's main accuser is leftist presidential candidate Andrés Manuel López Obrador. He came in second last July with about 31% of the vote to Peña Nieto's 38. López Obrador argued that the election was not free and fair, but tainted by an alliance between the PRI and Mexico's main TV networks and by rampant vote-buying on behalf of the PRI. 
but an electoral court last week dismissed the accusations because of lack of evidence. The ruling officially made Enrique Peña Nieto, Mexico's president-elect, to be sworn in December 1st. But López Obrador hasn't stopped his protest. Yesterday, in a big rally in Mexico City's main square, he vowed to keep going through a campaign of civil disobedience. No voy a reconocer a Peña Nieto como presidente legítimo de México. I will not recognize Peña Nieto as the legitimate president of Mexico, said López Obrador. He also said his future protests would be based on the principles of nonviolence. López Obrador has cried foul before. Six years ago, he lost the presidency by less than 1% to a candidate from the conservative PAN party, the now incumbent Felipe Calderón. After that vote, the defeated candidate also claimed the election was fraudulent and refused to recognize Calderón as a legitimate president. And he led street protests that paralyzed parts of Mexico City for weeks. Those protests generated some support for López Obrador, but soured many residents of the Mexican capital on his cause. This time, López Obrador says he doesn't want to disrupt people's lives. So instead of staging street protests, he's hoping to form a new party. At yesterday's rally, López Obrador said he's quitting the coalition of leftist parties that nominated him for president this year. En esta nueva etapa de mi vida... In this new stage of my life, he said, I will dedicate all my imagination and work for the cause of Mexico's transformation. López Obrador says he'll do so within the framework of his protest movement, whose members, he vows, will now discuss democratically whether to officially become a new political party. But some analysts in Mexico say López Obrador had no choice because members of his old party, the PRD, were growing tired of supporting him. For The World, I'm William Troop. Haiti is one tough place to be an athlete. The country is low on sports-related resources and infrastructure, especially since the devastating 2010 earthquake. Of the handful of athletes Haiti sent to the London Olympics this year, for instance, only one actually lived and trained in the country. But some see opportunity in the absence of infrastructure, at least in the lack of paved roads. See, registration is open for an elite international mountain bike race to take place in Haiti in January. The 80-mile course involves some 10,000 feet of climbing on steep, harrowing terrain. The world's Amy Bracken has the details. Philip Kurikoff flew to Haiti from his home in New York following the 2010 earthquake. He volunteered in the hardest-hit town, Leogan, but decided there was a better way to help. What they need more than anything is people to come down and just spend money. So the idea that someone would go down and have a great time is exactly the point. The Dominican Republic, uh, the neighboring country on the island, generates 14% of its GDP from tourism. You know, Haiti has none. Tourism, specifically off-the-beaten-track adventure tourism, seemed a solution. So Kurikov founded Mountain Bike IET and began planning the Haiti Ascent stage race. It started out as we would just have a race. But what it's really evolved into is a six-day, five-night race wrapped inside of a cultural immersion experience. And the idea is to get them to fall in love with Haiti. That is, have them do some work on trails, buy handicrafts, hear live music, and come back every year. I met with some of the organizers, members of the local road cycling club at the beginning of the course, in front of the remains of the National Palace in downtown Port-au-Prince. And then, almost immediately, we began the seemingly endless ascent by truck through the city, into the suburbs, villages, farmland, on an increasingly challenging road offering increasingly dramatic vistas and a welcome drop in temperature. Not only have none of these men ever been on a mountain bike, this is a really hard course. 
If the steepness and rocks don't get you, the winding razor's edge roads with terrifying vertical drops might. Haiti gets its name from Aiti, the Taino word for land of mountains. And the Haitian expression, beyond mountains, more mountains, refers to the endless problems the country faces, as well as its topography. Jonas Ronel heads the Leogan Cycling Club. He says a big part of the race's appeal is the exposure and resources intended to go along with it. There are no bike shops in Haiti. Renald and other cyclists have to ask friends overseas to purchase and bring them bikes. Then they fix and maintain them themselves. It's very difficult for Haitians to cycle at this level. We want to partner with foreigners so we can open a bike shop here to sell bikes, rent bikes, take people on bike tours to discover Haiti. This is exactly what Mountain Bike IET is planning to do. But the hope for help goes well beyond these bikers. After two hours of driving the course, our car will go no further. We get out and walk. A small store is opening on the roadside. A meal is being prepared. And Rosemen Joseph is setting up a table of undergarments and toiletries for sale. It's hard to imagine how she would benefit from cyclists racing past her business. But she sees it differently. It's a good thing, because when foreigners come here, there's a lot they could do. There's a lack of schools, and we don't have a health center nearby. Henri-Stal Rimitil, an elderly farmer, chimes in. He says he's really happy, because when the bikers come, they'll see all the problems they have, how poor they are. Residents here are oblivious to the hordes of NGOs that descend on the capital and other parts of the country. This might explain their hopes for what the race might do, Tour experts say this is part of the beauty of adventure tourism. It reaches a remote population and shows foreigners a different face of the country. This is why Cyril Pressoir, a Port-au-Prince-based tour operator, is on board. Because we're tired of the face that we're, uh, we're served constantly, and it doesn't reflect reality. The reality of Haiti is so much more complex. And whether it's mountain biking or any other type of adventure sports, my goal in this is anything that can get people to come to Haiti, to look at Haiti differently, with a different eye, and with an open art, then I'm very confident that from that experience, they'll love Haiti, they'll come back, and they'll become ambassadors. Oh, and the race ends in the southern beach city of Jacques Mel, just in time for the city's wild and creative carnival. The bikers simply can't escape without a good dose of the landscape and vivacious Haitian culture. For The World, I'm Amy Bracken. Hit the ascent stage on Haiti's mountain bike race course. Amy's slideshow is at theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman. A school district in New Mexico has a long tradition of educating kids from Mexico who cross the border every day. But some critics say the kids have become pawns in the illegal drug trade. We're paying way too much money to educate kids that are just being drug mules. It's got to be stopped. That's ahead on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The U.S. is so focused on the election here, you might not have noticed that Hong Kong had elections over the weekend, and results are now in. Pro-Beijing candidates ended up with a majority in the former British colonies legislature, but pro-democracy candidates did well enough to secure a third of the seats, and that gives them veto power. Hong Kong is governed by a hybrid political system set up after the territory was handed back to China in 1997. Under that system, only slightly over half of the legislative seats are directly elected by popular vote. The rest are chosen by members of special interest groups that tend to favor Beijing's interests. And Hong Kong's chief executive is appointed by Beijing as well. The world's Mary Kay Magsat joins us right now. Mary Kay, to begin with, was this election good news for pro-democracy parties in Hong Kong, Mary Kay? I mean, did it give them something to build on? Yeah, I think it did. The fact that 53% of the Hong Kong population turned out to vote, much higher than the 47% in the last election, is a very good sign for democracy in Hong Kong. Why did so many more people turn out to vote? Because there's been a very hot issue at play uh, in the Hong Kong public over the last few weeks, and it's drawn hundreds of thousands of people out into the streets in groups of 50,000, 70,000, 100,000 at a time. Right. Let me ask you about, about that, because the election this weekend played out against those protests. They're protesting a government uh, patriotism education plan that apparently was being uh, uh, foisted on them by Beijing. Right. After the Tiananmen demonstrations in China in, in 1989, after the crackdown, the government imposed something called patriotic education. And it's basically a set of courses, films, lessons that talk about the humiliation at the hands of foreign powers that China has suffered for 150 years until Hong Kong returned to the motherland. And it really stresses that Chinese people are a great nation, a great people who need to bond together and make sure that China rises and retakes its rightful place in the world as its preeminent power. So those people who have to take those patriotism classes on the mainland, why were Hong Kongers so adamant not to take it? Uh, there's a fundamental lack of understanding that Hong Kongers really are used to a different way of life, are really used to being able to employ critical thinking and how they think about the way that their government is treating them, both in Hong Kong and in Beijing. And so they've pushed back against the idea that their kids are going to be effectively brainwashed, that's how they see it, in the schools. Um, what ended up happening is on the day of the election, on Sunday, the government said, okay, well, so we won't force the schools to start this patriotic education by a particular deadline. It's up to them how they're going to play it. Mary Kay, what's going on in the minds of Hong Kongers these days? Are they just more vigilant than ever about holding on to the liberties they do have? You know, it's interesting. I lived in Hong Kong just before the handover in the mid-90s. And at that time, when I talked to people about how do you feel about the handover, a lot of people were really reticent to express political opinions. They'd say, you know, look, I'm keeping my head down. I've got a business. I'm just getting on with life. As time has gone on and there's been a generational change and also as Hong Kongers have seen some of their civil liberties eroded, um, there's been kind of a squeeze on the Hong Kong press. There have been other situations where, you know, it's it's a little less easy to demonstrate than it used to be. P more people have felt that it's important to push back. Hmm. And a couple of examples in 2003 and 2004, Beijing government was saying that there had to be 
anti-sedition legislation enacted in Hong Kong. This would have basically made it illegal to criticize the Beijing government. People could have been jailed for criticizing the central government in China. There were half a million people out on the streets in 2003 and almost that many again in 2004. And when the Chinese government looked at that kind of reaction, that was one reason why they actually thought, okay, we, we need something like patriotic education there. They're kind of at a loss about how you manage this kind of sentiment. That was the world's China correspondent, Mary Kay Magstad. You can read what life is like in Hong Kong for a college student from mainland China. Our intern, Angela Sun, writes about her cousin's experiences studying at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Check it out at theworld.org. In the United States, many school districts take pains to ensure that they're only educating kids who can prove local residency. But one district in New Mexico has more of an open-door policy. It's been taking in students from out of the country. These students cross the border from Mexico every day to go to American schools. Terry Schultz has the story. Lola Campo says it hurts to see her seven-year-old daughter tear up every morning as she walks across the border, leaving her mom behind in Palomas, Mexico. But Campos is grateful her daughter gets the opportunity. She cries, Campos says, but I'm glad she gets to go to school on the other side. Her daughter is one of about 400 kids in Palomas who can go to American schools because they were born in the U.S., Campos delivered her baby in New Mexico to give her a passport to a better life, including the right to a U.S. education. The courts have generally upheld that right. What is unusual at the Palomas-Columbus crossing is the welcome mat put out for these children. It's illustrated by the trail of yellow school buses, taking them from the border to nearby Columbus Elementary or 30 miles away to junior or senior high in Deming. Harvey Lee Moore is the superintendent of Deming Public Schools. She says the tradition of educating the children of Palomas started in the 1950s. Back then, they didn't have to be American citizens. In the early days, it was if there was room. And so that was a philosophy that's, that sort of caught on. Moore says in the 70s, Luna County decided every enrolled student must prove U.S. citizenship. Moore says the schools require the documents, but don't police the student body. New Mexico asks its schools to educate, and that is what we do. We would not be doing our jobs if we turned any child away who was qualified by state regulation and federal to come to school. Who are we to say no? There are those in the area who'd like to say no. Among them, Gordon Mast, head of the Luna County Tea Party Patriots. Mast wants the school board to require students' families to live in Luna County and pay taxes to support the schools. He accuses the school district of inflating its numbers with the kids from Palomas to get more government funding. Mast says that's caused overcrowding. So we had to build a new school. If we're going to do that, it's cheaper to build one in Palomas. They said, we can't do that. We can't spend our money in Palomas, but we can spend our money here educating them. But Mast's arguments go beyond the financial. The Mexican drug war spread to Palomas in force a few years ago, and dealers saw great potential in the hundreds of students who cross the border every day and undergo only irregular backpack checks. Mast says he doesn't blame the kids, but... We're paying way too much money to educate kids that are just being drug mules. It's got to be stopped. U.S. Customs and Border Protection confirms the trend. Authorities say from January through April of this year, 40 percent of marijuana seizures at the Columbus Port of Entry, where the students cross, were from people aged 17 or younger. Most of them were from Palomas. 
Luna County Sheriff Raymond Cobo says few students carry drugs by choice. Okay, here you have a 15, 16, maybe 17-year-old kid who's told, if you don't do this, don't bother coming home. There's nothing to come home to. And the only way to mitigate that is to do what they're asked to do, carry drugs. That's why it would be better for everyone if the students were forced to stay on the Paloma side, says Gordon Mast. No incentive for drug dealers, fewer students in Luna County classrooms. But School Superintendent Moore says those who oppose educating Paloma students are being short-sighted. If they are educated, they have the opportunity to give back to society. They can become hardworking taxpayers. They will be creating some of the jobs of the future. Unless the Board of Education changes her mandate, Moore says, the job of Luna County public educators is to ask the students what they plan to learn this year, not where they live. For The World, Terry Schultz, the New Mexico-Mexico border. When it comes to voting, officials in Florida say it's their job to ask, are you a U.S. citizen? That's why they launched a statewide effort to purge illegal aliens who've unlawfully registered to vote. Critics denounced the plan, pushed by Florida's Republican governor, as an attempt to disenfranchise voters, particularly those with Spanish-sounding names. The effort started with a list of 180,000 potential non-citizen voters. It's ended with just one illegal alien voter, a 52-year-old Canadian named Yosef Seva. Paul Coring has written about the case for Canada's Globe and Mail newspaper. So, Paul, this man, Yosef Seva, has pled guilty to a number of felony charges. What has he actually admitted to doing? Well, as part of his guilty plea, he uh, admitted that he's voted twice in uh, presidential elections, 2004 and 2008. But he's also at least four times attested that he was a U.S. citizen when he uh, applied to purchase firearms. And it seems at least one more time to get a concealed carry permit that allows you to carry a handgun in a pocket or inside your clothing in Florida. And how long has Mr. Seva been in the U.S. pulling off this fraud? We did a bit of a search of documents, and it looks like as far back as 1998, he may have been signing documents for corporate, uh, register uh, some sort of consulting company in Florida. So when he actually came to the United States isn't entirely clear. Of course, Canadians can come to the United States without a visa. Millions of them do every year as visitors, and certainly there are lots of Canadians who go to Florida to retire. But you can't stay here, and you can't work here, and you certainly can't vote here. Now, the reason Mr. Seva's case is of interest is because uh, it's part of a larger Republican effort to impose stricter voter identification measures. I mean, some say it's to prevent fraud. Others see it as a scheme to disenfranchise poorer voters and Obama supporters. How widespread are, are the voter ID laws? The requirements are the same. You have to be a U.S. citizen. But uh, in some states, you can simply attest you are. In others, different forms of documentation need to be produced. And certainly what's going on right now is this there's sort of this groundswell of effort, primarily in Republican-controlled states, to cull the voters' lists, to go and see if people are unlawfully on those voters' lists. And, And critics of those efforts regard them as a way of disenfranchising the poor and uh, African-Americans and people who might vote for Democrats. But it's all done under the quite legitimate and legal claim that it's important that only United States citizens vote in United States elections. I think the underlying issue is whether or not 
illegal aliens, of which there are, depending on on who's counting, somewhere between 15 and 20 million of them in the United States, are the kind of people who would actively seek out authorities and get themselves on voting lists. Mm. Uh, Certainly most people would argue the opposite, that if you're an illegal alien in this country, you try and stay below the horizon, that you have as little contact with the government as possible, that maybe you register uh, to get your kid into school or maybe you get a driver's license if you absolutely need one. But actually go and get yourself on a voter's list so you can – so you have the right to vote seems fairly risky. I mean, in the case of Mr. Seva, his desire to vote seems to have been his undoing. Has he stated why he registered to vote? No, we haven't heard from him. He's been in custody since July. In his brief court appearance, he simply pled guilty. He signed a proffer from which we know most of the details of the cases. And what impelled him to uh, seek to masquerade as a United States citizen is is entirely unclear. It's not clear whether it was because he wanted to get a firearms permit first. I guess it's important to him or was important to him to take part in the political process. Did did he say whether he voted Republican or Democrat? He didn't say how he (laughs) voted. And he did register uh, with no party affiliation. So there's no hint as to whether he was a Democrat or Republican. But at least some of the bloggers in Florida who've picked up on this have have, uh, had some fun suggesting that he fits the profile of the kind of guy that uh, might very well have been voting Republican. But we simply don't know. What happens to Mr. Seva now? His sentencing is a few days after the election. Uh, He certainly could get up to five years for each of the gun counts, and he could get one year for each of the falsely attesting to be a U.S. citizen on the voting fraud counts. Whether or not he gets a custodial sentence or whether or not he's simply deported, once he's finished his time in prison, he will be going back to Canada. Paul Coring, a correspondent for Canada's Globe and Mail newspaper, speaking with us from Washington. Thanks very much, Paul. Thank you. Okay, switching gears now, nearly a 1,000 swimmers donned goggles and swim caps, oh, and got tetanus shots for a charity event yesterday in Amsterdam. That's where our GeoQuiz takes us today. The swimmers dove in and swam along Amsterdam's famous canals. Major Dutch canals in Amsterdam are the Prinsengracht, the Keizersgracht, the Herengracht, and the Singel. We have the Droogdok, the Nieuwe Herengracht, the Amstel, which is a big one. I can switch to rivers if you want. No, 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 no. Hold up on the rivers. We just want you to name one of Amsterdam's main canals. It's one of the widest, the Emperor's Canal, named after a holy Roman emperor. The canal served as the finish line for yesterday's Amsterdam City Swim. We'll talk to one of the swimmers and identify the mysterious royal who dove in with her orange swimming cap when we reveal the answer in just a bit. This is PRI. 
The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of American Experience. Filmmaker Rick Burns examines how the staggering death tolls of the Civil War altered the character and psyche of our nation forever. Don't miss Death and the Civil War, Tuesday, September 18th on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Let's find out now why a thousand swimmers jumped into the urban waters of the Amsterdam canals yesterday and answer our geo-quiz. Mark Terhaar is one of the organizers of the Amsterdam City Swim. Mark, tell us, first of all, what it was like in the water yesterday. I mean, not many people often go swimming in the canals of Amsterdam. No, that's right, Marco. It's uh, It was great. Uh, the sun was shining. It was, there was, uh, it's been summer for one day. That was yesterday. And there were about 100,000 people uh, along the canals and on the bridges. It was a super day. Now, I thought the canals in Amsterdam had a reputation for being polluted. This was a charity swim, so I imagine that's a motivation. But 1,000 people jumping in these canals in Amsterdam? How'd you do it? First of all, the, the reputation of the canals is indeed pretty bad. But that used to be 10 years ago. Since then, the water has been cleaned a lot. And by having 1,000 swimmers in the uh, canals... We've actually proven that it's uh, it's safe to swim health-wise. And how did we get 1,100 people in the in the canals? Well, we connected this race with a charity goal. Uh, the charity was the, um, the disease called uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. We call it mm-hmm. differently. We call it ALS. Right. But Lou Gehrig's disease, your listeners probably know about it. It's it paralyzes your body while your your mind stays intact, and it's terrible. Right, and it's incurable and degenerative. Correct. Now we have comments from two swimmers who were involved yesterday. Let's hear how their experience went. If you've lived long enough in Amsterdam, you always thought this must be fantastic to dive into it. Uh, normally, you know, but it's not clean enough. But now they cleaned it everything up. I also think it's something typically Dutch because it's, it's slightly crazy. I've always been visiting, going on the canals, going uh, on bikes and on barges. But hey, why not swim it? Now, as you said, this was a, a charity swim to battle Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, and that fact seemed to draw some VIPs to the water. Tell us about the woman in the wetsuit and orange swim cap uh, that you were swimming with. <laughs> yes, well, that was our crown princess of the Netherlands, uh, Princess Maxima. The reason she was in the race is the fact that she knows somebody who has uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, so um, she thought it a good idea to be in the race. I assume the Dutch princess doesn't typically get in a wetsuit, much less go swimming in an Amsterdam canal. What did you two talk about as you were swimming side by side? Well, if you swim uh, breaststroke, you don't talk much because your head is in the water most of the time. But we uh, we talked about uh, the amazing amount of people on the uh, on the sides of the canals and on the bridges. And in fact, how many more meters we had to go. Right. All right. So here's uh, Princess Maxima after the race talking about how it did go. She says uh, in Dutch, yes, it was great, really fantastic. Princess Maxima wasn't the only VIP, uh, Mark. I understand you had some Dutch Olympic swimmers along with you, too. We did. We had um, basically most of the Dutch Olympic team who competed in London this year. In total, we had, I believe, 16 Olympic medals in the pool or in, in the canals. All right, so where did this event end up? Which uh, canal hosted the final celebrations? Well, that was the uh, the famous canal called the Keizersgracht. That is the answer to our geo-quiz today. Uh, a tough answer and a tough one to say. Built in the 17th century, Mark, finally, 
what do you prefer, swimming or skating? What, what's the best mode of transport for getting across the canal, in your opinion? <laughs> it depends on the season, of course. In winter, it's skating. And, and in summer, in my eyes, it's swimming. It's obvious. <laughs> when you're over in Holland, uh, call me and, and we'll do it together. I'll bring my wetsuit. Mark Dehar, one of the organizers of the Amsterdam City Swim, he did the breaststroke across the Kaiserschacht Canal. That is the answer to the geo quiz. Mark, thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you, Marco. Bye-bye. And finally, songs by Leonard Cohen and the late British singer Nick Drake get a new musical treatment. Swiss harpist Giovanna Pessi and Norwegian pop vocalist Susanna Wallumrud teamed up for the project. The result, as KCRW's Tom Schnabel tells us, is magic. The title of the album is called If Grief Could Wait. It's very, very different, and that's what struck me and why I love this album so much. It has some originals that are really beautiful, as well as some very unusual cover versions done uh, kind of Baroque style. The first song that I'd like to share is a Leonard Cohen song called Who by Fire. I didn't really know this song, but hearing it done in this Baroque way with a Baroque harp, a singer, viola da gamba, and a nickel harp, really, really grabbed me. Very unusual. And who by fire Who by water Who in the sunshine Who in the nighttime Who by high or deep Who by common try That was a Leonard Cohen song called Who by Fire, performed by Giovanna Pessi, the Baroque harpist. The singer is a Norwegian pop singer named Susanna Wallumrud. And one of the, the magical things about this record is you take a pop singer and put her into a more of a classical Baroque context, and you get something, to me, that's, that's better and more interesting than just putting a, a countertenor or a soprano, a trained classical soprano in. You get a whole other dimension that is one of the things that makes this album so interesting. Another song from Giovanna Pesci's new album with Susanna Wallumrud is a Nick Drake song, I think originally on Pink Moon. It's called Which Will. And it just goes again, this group is very, very unusual with the pop singer and tackling some of these pop classics, but in a Baroque style. It's music that just keeps giving you more and more beauty every time you listen to it. Which way you go for? album is If Grief Could Wait, with Giovanna Pessi on harp and Susanna Wallumrud on vocal. It was chosen for us today by reviewer Tom Schnabel from station KCRW in Santa Monica, California. Watch a video of Pessi and Wallumrud talking about the making of their album at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman.
We're back tomorrow. is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues, the Carnegie Corporation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, the Freeman Foundation, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.